morning. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter number 21. Matthew chapter 21. While you find your place there, let me thank all of our visitors for being here today. What a blessing that that is to have you in this place. And, um, you know, anybody can stumble in here one time, but if you come back tonight, it's on only your own fault. Amen. So, but we're thrilled that you're here today. We hope you feel at home in the Lord's house. Matthew chapter number 21. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 18. We'll read down to verse number 20. Matthew chapter 21. Verse number 18, the Bible says, Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, now this is speaking of Jesus going into Jerusalem. In the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. When he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here in your house. Lord, you've gathered us here in this place. There's not a single person that's here by accident, Lord. We're here by providence this morning. You brought us here because you have truth for us. You desire to speak truth to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that every person in this room would have a heart open to truth, that you'd speak to us that which is most needful in our life, Lord. And If there's any that do not know Christ, that have never been saved, they've never asked Christ to forgive them and save them, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would make that decision to trust Christ. Lord, that they not leave here ere they've settled that most important of matters with you. Lord, I pray that if there's any that are here today that are discouraged, that you'd encourage them. Lord, any that are lifted up, that you would abase them. Any that have sin in their life, that you'd deal with them according to your will. Lord, show that sin to them. Convict them of it. Lord, I pray that in all things you'd receive glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this morning, as we read our text, if you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, you may have been puzzled a little bit as to what is taking place here and and maybe even puzzled as to why we're drawing our attention to it this morning. And I promise that in due time, you're going to see what God's doing in this passage. But for the time being, I want you to notice something that's said in verse number 18. And you may have passed over it as merely a statement of record, but I want us to notice it together this morning. The Bible says that this event that takes place when the Lord Jesus passes by this fig tree, stops to examine it, seeking fruit on it, he finds no fruit, only leaves, and he curses this fig tree, he he, he proclaims judgment upon it, and uh, then immediately it, it withers away. The Bible says in verse number 18 that all this happened in the morning as he returned into the city. One of the things I love to do as I study the Word of God is try to see themes and patterns. You know, no single word of this King James Bible is here by accident or by error. It is all here for our edification. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, not just the big verses, not just your favorite verse, but all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so I often ask myself when I read a passage of Scripture, why is this detail here? Is it necessary that it be here? Is it is it germane or, or, or vital to the text that we know it? And the Holy Ghost goes out of His way to tell us that this event happened in the morning. It's interesting when you think about the morning time. If you go through the life of the Lord Jesus, there are several significant things that seem to happen at that time of the day. But when we look at the Lord's, uh, the closing of our Lord's ministry, when we look at the last week or so before He was crucified, buried, and rose again, 
you will find that there are three distinct morning scenes that are recorded in the Scripture. Three times when early in the day something took place. And so I began to think, why does the Bible emphasize? Why does it tell us these things are happening in the morning? And I began to think about why morning would be a meaningful period of time. You know, every part of a day has certain significance to it. And when you think about the morning time, there are three thoughts that come to my mind. The first I would say is that morning is a time of illumination. In fact, by definition, morning is typically a moment of illumination. The darkness of the night has passed. The light begins to shine. You can see things in the brightness of the morning that you cannot see in the darkness of the night. And so it is a time when things are brought into the light, when things are disclosed, when things are revealed. The second thing that I thought of is morning is a time of transition. It's a time when you're passing from darkness into light, from the prior day. And we understand that uh, as far as the clock is concerned, a day begins at, at 12 a.m. But often we think of our day beginning with the morning time, beginning with the sunrise. It is a time when you are transitioning from one day to another and certainly from one season of time to another. If you're like most people, it's a time when you're transitioning from one state of existence to another. You've been sleeping and now it is time to awaken. You have been resting. It is now a time to be active. So it is a time of transition. And a third thought occurred to me. Morning is not only a time of illumination and a time of transition, but morning is a time of anticipation. Often when you wake up in the morning, you have the whole day in front of you, as some folks have called it, like a blank canvas laid out before you. And oftentimes you'll wonder what a day may hold. For most people that keep regular schedules, when you get late into the evening, you don't wonder what's left, uh, not unless you had crystal seeds. Somebody say amen to that. But, but you don't wonder what the rest of the night holds. For you often know, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to bed, I'm going to rest, I'm going to sleep. But when you wake up in the morning, it is a time that is filled with anticipation. What's going to happen today? What am I going to be involved in today? What's going to transpire? Now, those three thoughts may seem benign at first. You may say, all right, preacher, that's good. It's a time when the sun comes up and it's a time when things are changing. It's a time of anticipation. You're thinking about what you're going to do. But what does that mean to me sitting here on Wall Ridge Road? Well, when I began to think of, of the Holy Ghost's emphasis, his involvement with this idea of the morning, and you then begin to think of these three moments in our Lord's ministry at the close of it, you'll find that each of these three thoughts are embodied in one of these morning scenes. There is the morning whenever he curses this fig tree. There is the morning when he is crucified. And then, thank God, there's the morning when he rose glorious and victorious over death. And so these morning moments are meaningful. I want to preach to you on that thought this morning. Meaningful mornings. I want us to look at this and ask ourselves, what does the Bible teach us in this moment and why does God emphasize it being a morning moment? I would say this, that the very first of these mornings is in our text. And we could say it this way, it was a moment of illumination. As the disciples are walking down the road, they probably didn't even notice this fig tree. Certainly they did not give it the attention that the Lord did. But the Lord goes to it, seeking to find fruit thereon. He finds none, and He curses this fig tree. That may seem like an odd event to you, but you'll find as we examine it closer that God is revealing some things about what He's been doing throughout humanity, what He was presently doing in that moment, and what He even today desires to do in your life. I'd call it this. This is the morning of cursing. 
What do we learn from this passage of Scripture? Well, I think the best way to, to, to preach it is just to look at it through three perspectives. Uh, again, you might say, preacher, what a strange passage of Scripture. But when you understand where Israel as a nation is at this moment in their history, you'll begin to understand why the Lord Jesus did this. And I'd remind you that though He was 100% man, He was also 100% God. He did not have to stop to see whether there was any uh, fruit on this fig tree. He already knew that there was no fruit on this fig tree. He didn't have to stop to get something to eat if he desired not to do so. He was God. He, uh, as the devil tempted him to do, he could have turned stones into bread, or he could have simply, you know, subjugated his, his hunger, brought it under force of his will. But he goes out of his way to stop and to look at this fig tree. Why does he do this? What does this teach to us? Well, I would say it this way. Number one this morning, there are some dispensational truths that are revealed in this passage of Scripture. Now, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, preacher, you've done lost me. You use a $10 word like dispensational? What does dispensational mean? Well, dispensational is a theologian's term, but it basically means this. Ways that God dealt with humanity at different times. You know, there are certain things that God expected out of Adam that, that uh, He doesn't expect out of us, and certain things that God expects out of us that He never expected out of Adam. You're here today, I trust, out of obedience to the Lord, because you know you're expected by the Lord to be in the house of God. Adam never went to church. There wasn't a church when Adam was living. And so God deals with humanity in different ways at different times in Scripture. And when we speak about it in that term, dispensation, often what we're saying is the broad arc of how God's dealt with humanity. We could call it this, God's plan of redemption through the ages. What God's doing at different times throughout history. And when we look at this passage, what the Lord is really seeking to do is to unveil to us an important moment in Israel's history. God had chosen Abraham out from pagan darkness and in him built a nation that was to be the people of God. This was to culminate with their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to earth and them accepting him and crowning him. But you can read your Bible and you already know it. You wouldn't be here today uh, if you didn't already know this to be true, that that's not the way that things panned out. Israel did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Instead, they rejected him, turned him over to the Romans, and he was crucified, dying for your sins and mine. And in this passage, the Lord Jesus is pulling the veil back on some of the things that are taking place in this nation and what God is doing in this world. You know, to understand this passage, I think it might be worthwhile to read Mark's account of it. Turn over to the book of Mark with me, chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11. Now, this is uh, the same story, but it's told from Mark's perspective. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11 that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves... He came, if haply he might find anything thereon. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Now I want you to notice this next phrase. For the time of figs was not yet. Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Look down at verse 19. The Bible says, And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. I drew your attention to the phrase that the Holy Ghost gives us in verse 13. The Lord Jesus comes to this tree 
and it has leaves on it. That should signify that it should have some fruit on it. But it was not yet time for figs to be ready. But because that tree has all the leaves that it needs to be bearing fruit, the Lord Jesus goes to it and He seeks figs on this tree. When He gets there, there are no figs, and He curses it. And yet the Bible says this. I mean, it says the time of figs was not yet. I don't know about you, but if I was a fig tree, I'd feel like I'd been done wrong. Somebody say amen. I mean, I'd be sitting there thinking, now you knew, you're God, you knew there was no figs when you came here. And that then begs the question, why does the Lord Jesus do this? He is God. He knows there's no figs there. He knows even though there's leaves, and even though it has everything it needs to have figs, and even though it looks like it should have figs, He knows before He ever walks up that it does not have them there. Now, what is the Lord teaching us? Well, there's three thoughts here about Israel, where they're at at this moment in history, and what God's doing. And the first thing that it reveals to us is Israel's real choice concerning the Messiah. Why did the Lord come to this tree if there were no figs? Well, very simply because it had the leaves that suggested it should have had figs. This is a picture of the Messiah coming to Israel at this moment in their history. And though God knew that Israel would reject the Messiah, God knew that Israel would would lie against Him, that Israel would, would deliver Him over to the Romans, still yet the time was full and they had everything they needed to have accepted Him. They had everything they needed to have known that He was the Messiah. And God giving them a legitimate opportunity to receive their Messiah He sent His Son to this world. He preached. He ministered. He he worked miracles amongst the Jews. They had every opportunity to receive Him as their Messiah. You know, and I don't want to get in the weeds here, but I do want to just point this out. When the Lord Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel, He was not bluffing. He was making a legitimate offer to them that had they chosen Him as their Messiah, He would have allowed them to accept Him. If they had in their heart truly turned to righteousness, and not just outward, not just political deliverance, but righteousness, He would have allowed them to crown Him. I want you to notice what it says in Matthew chapter 17. You, You can turn there. You don't have to if you don't want to. I want to read just a few verses. The Bible says this in Matthew chapter number 10, or number 17, chapter 17, verse 10, that the Lord's disciples asked Him this question saying, when the scribe, why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Now somebody's going to say, wait a minute, preacher, I already don't know where we're at and what's going on. They ask this question. Before the Messiah comes, the scribes, those men that knew the Old Testament Scripture, they declare to us that Elijah, Elias is a New Testament way of saying Elijah in the Old Testament. They said, the scribes teach us that before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to return first. How is this possible? How could you be the Messiah if Elijah has not showed up yet? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. In other words, set the kingdom and set the the nation in order. But I say unto you that Elias, Elijah, is come already, and they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed, likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Some of you are saying, preacher, I'm more lost than when we started. Where's Elijah at? If Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, has returned, Jesus said he had already come back, but I don't see him anywhere. He's there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he's not ministering in the kingdom. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he tells us in Matthew chapter 11. Listen to what he says in verse number 7. As they departed, 
Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. Remember John the Baptist in the Word of God. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus calls John the Baptist a prophet. He says this, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before these. Quoting from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. Then Jesus says this, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this, speaking of John, this is Elias. This is Elijah, which was for to come. Now, somebody's waiting on me to preach something that's got something to do with their life this morning. I'm going to get to it. Amen. But I want you to notice very quickly this morning, the Lord Jesus points to John the Baptist and he says, you know, had you been willing to receive John, he would have served in the spirit of Elijah. He would have turned the heart of the nation if the nation would have heard him. And then I would have come and preached the kingdom of heaven and you could have received me as your Messiah. But instead of heeding and hearing the voice of John, you took him and you martyred him, you slew him, you, you, you uh, put him to death, and now you're bearing the judgment for it. Now, it sort of sounds to me, and I think we're on good biblical ground this morning, that what the Lord's saying is, Israel, you had a real sincere choice that you could have made. Can I say to you this morning, hey, God knows the end from the beginning. But God doesn't bluff anybody. Listen, there are going to be people wind up in hell because they've rejected Christ. But there ain't a one of them that got there because that's what God chose for them. They made that choice themselves. If you die and go to hell, listen, you'll have to step over Calvary. You'll have to step over the gospel. You'll have to step over Bible preachers that have preached the Word of God to you. You'll have to step over the heart of God that has beat for you, that has longed for you. You'll have to step over the plan of God for humanity, the redemption of Christ, the testimony of the Word of God. You won't go there because God chose it for you, because God wouldn't choose that for any man. If God was choosing for people, I'll tell you what He would choose. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But He gives us legitimate free will choice. And Israel, likewise, they had a real choice. I, listen to what one commentator said about this moment in Israel's history. The assumption of first century believers that the Lord's return might be in their lifetimes was not at all unreasonable. They were believing the Lord would return to set up His kingdom in their lifetime. He says this, we might legitimately ask, what would have happened if the Jews had accepted Christ instead of rejecting Him? Presumably, in that case, the Lord would have been handed over by Judas to the Romans, and he would have been crucified and buried and raised again as foretold. The emphasis would then have been on the kingdom and not on the church. Nero would have been the Antichrist, and the neuronic persecutions would have blossomed into the Great Tribulation. Armageddon would have been fought, and the Lord would have returned to inaugurate the Millennial Kingdom, and it would all have been over a thousand years ago. When you look, and this is part of the problem that all millennialists have with spiritualizing away the book of Revelation, they look at it and say, well, couldn't that apply to Rome of old when it talks about the tribulation, when it talks about the Antichrist, when it talks about the persecution against Israel in, in 70 AD that was fulfilled? Couldn't that have been talking? I mean, can't that just be a picture? Couldn't that have already been fulfilled? Well, there's two problems with that. One, Israel has not been restored in righteousness yet. 
So the same prophecies that say that there would be a great tribulation against Israel also say that at the close of it, the Lord would usher in a kingdom for a thousand years. You're going to have to do something about the Israel problem. You're going to have to do something about them as a nation, their current spiritual situation. Then I would say this, it's not by accident that so many of the things parallel. You know why? Because Christ was giving them a legitimate choice. History had been situated such that they could have chosen to accept him. So we see Israel's real choice that they had in this passage. He said, preacher, why did the Lord come to it if he knew there was no fruit thereon? For the same reason that he sent his son to Calvary. Because he wanted to give men a legitimate choice to choose him. We see it reveals the Israel's real choice. But number two, it reveals Israel's rebellion. The Bible says in verse number 19, when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it. And he found nothing thereon but leaves only. In other words, he saw the outward vestiges of righteousness. And hey, listen, even in the days that our Lord walked this earth, uh, men in Israel were saying they were looking for the Messiah. Uh, Talks cheap. (laughs) When the Messiah came and appeared to him, they rejected him. Can I say this? There's lots of folks talk about church, talk about Jesus, talk about God, talk about religion, talk about the Bible, but don't have a thing in their heart and spirit to do with any of it. See, the reality is this. uh, The Lord was pointing to the fact that Israel, though they had much outward righteousness, they had no inward fruit in their heart. When, When it came down to it, when the moment of choice came, there was nothing substantive in the people in the nation. It reveals Israel's rebellion that they would reject Him. But then it reveals Israel's retribution. Look at verse number 19. The Bible says this. Uh, that the Lord Jesus said unto this tree, when he saw that it had no fruit, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you've got probably a hundred questions that are just lighting off in your mind right now. Some would say, well, preacher, does this mean that God's cast off Israel, that he's done with them? No. Book Romans says explicitly that God had not cast off Israel forever. Uh, you say, but preacher, are you saying that the Lord has, has displaced Israel with the church? It's not about Israel now, now it's about the church. No. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that those two entities still exist to this. There's still a nation of Israel. God still has promises to him. There is certainly a church, a body of Christ, and God has dealings with them. So you say, well, preacher, what does it mean when it says that there would be no fruit henceforth? Remember, this fig tree is picturing Israel in her national condition. They had an opportunity as a nation to receive the Messiah, but they chose to reject him instead. Now their salvation is not going to come through a great revelation. It's going to come through a great tribulation. They would not be given an opportunity just to choose him now. Now the individual Jew put their faith in Christ, of course. But the nation at large, God would not give them another opportunity as a nation to receive the Messiah. Now he will come not not as their Messiah, but as their rescuer at the close of the tribulation period. Uh, We find God's pronouncement. We could say this, it reveals Israel's retribution that God would put upon them. That he would turn the nation over to persecution, to affliction that He would allow them to go through the furnace of trial and and affliction and suffering and thereby purge them of their rebellion, that God would turn away His attention for a season. But when He says, let no fruit go uh, thereon henceforth forever, He's not saying He's done with Israel. What He's saying is this, I'm done letting Israel be the master of their destiny. Now I'm going to take control of what's going on. So we have some dispensational truths that are contained in this passage. But then I would say this, When I read this, there are some theological truths that are revealed as well. 
You say, now preacher, we've heard a lot about Israel, but I ain't a Jew. Preacher, we've heard a lot about uh, about Bible times, but I'm living in today. Let me give you some today truth. You know, when I read this passage, it reveals to me some things about God that inform my interactions with Him. The Bible reveals to us the mind, heart, and person and personality of God. And when I read this, there's some things that I just simply learn about God. You say, preacher, what do you learn about God here? Well, number one, I would say this. I'll learn a truth about God's appetite. Isn't this interesting? The Bible says in verse 18, now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. Now, if we believe Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, God in the flesh, and our Bible teaches us clearly that he is, then that, that produces a lot of questions to me. Number one, why would God orchestrate this such that he's hungry at this moment when there's nothing to eat around? He knows there's no figs on that fig tree. Why would he even allow his hunger to dictate anything that he does? I mean, he's God in the flesh. He doesn't have to be hungry if he doesn't want to be hungry. And he certainly doesn't have to go seeking for fruit if he doesn't want to go seeking for these figs. Why does Jesus do this? Could it be he's trying to reveal something about the heart of God to us? Could it be if Jesus was hungry that God likewise has a hunger? What is that hunger? Well, I would notice this. He wanted to partake in the fruit of Israel as a people. You know, there's no more intimate relationship that you have than when you partake of food. Uh, we consider it a common bond, especially down here in the South. Somebody say amen to break bread together. And I would say this, there's no more intimate relationship you can have with your dinner than to eat it. You know, the Bible uses this same terminology when it talks about our relationship with Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible tells me this, that we are partakers of Christ. Uh, the Bible calls Jesus the bread of life that we eat thereof. It calls Him the water of life that we drink of. And that doesn't mean that we literally eat His flesh, as the Roman Catholics say. It doesn't mean that we literally drink His blood, as the Roman Catholics say. But what it does mean is this, that spiritually when we believe in Christ, we are taking Him into our life, making us a part of Him and Him a part of us. Stop and think about this. We ought to want to partake in God to know Him personally. What precious truth it is to know that just as sure as we ought to want to partake in Him, God likewise wants to partake in us. He has a hunger, and that could have been a hunger for anything, but it was a hunger that His people would know Him personally and intimately. Can I tell you what God wants more than anything? God wants sinners to come to Christ. Can I tell you what He wants out of your life? More than you being moral, and God wants us to be moral. More than you being a church member, and God wants us to be church members. More than you being baptized, and after we've been saved, it's biblical to get baptized. But more than that, you know what God desires out of humanity? That He might save them and have an intimate relationship with them. Have a spiritual bond that He might know them personally. God has a desire. We talk often about how sinners ought to want God. But listen, can I remind you that God wants sinners. He, he, he longs for them uh, to be saved so desperately that He sent His Son to Calvary. And I would say this, if anybody's proved that they're interested in saving sinners, God above all has proven that. You may have no interest in God, but I tell you, God has an interest in you. He desires to be a part of your life. So I learn a truth about God's appetite. Number two, I learn a truth about God's assessment. The Bible says in verse 19, when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon. And that's interesting. He's God, remember? He knows everything. He doesn't have to go to that fig tree. 
He already knew. In fact, before this fig tree was ever planted, he knew what the destiny of this fig tree would be. Before any tree was ever planted, he knew all things. He's God forever, eternal, blessed forevermore. And yet he still comes to it and examines it. What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us this. Even though God knows all things, there's coming an examination day when we're going to be laid before the eyes of God and we're going to be reckoned and judged according to the choices that we've made. In other words, there's coming a day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to have to give an answer for the choices that we've made in life. If you're lost, you're going to stand before Him at what Revelation calls the great white throne judgment. You're not there to find out if you're going to go to heaven or not. You're there to have the crimes of your rebellion read out against you before you're cast into the lake of fire. Even us as Christians that know the Lord as our Savior, we don't escape having to have an examination day. One day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, here's a universal truth. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Everybody's going to stand before God one day. You say, preacher, I don't know if God will ever come to me. No, but one day you're going to go to Him. And you're going to have to answer for the choices that you've made. It may seem like it's in the far-flung distant future. It may seem like it's never going to arrive. But I promise when that day comes, and listen, you're not promised tomorrow. I'm not promised tomorrow. Listen, you may be standing, you may be singing at my funeral. Some of y'all may be dancing at it by tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. But even should you live a hundred years, I promise you, when you stand before God, that hundred years is not going to seem very long. There's an examination. I see a truth about God's assessment. Then I see a truth about God's appraisal. The Bible says this, that when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon. Then notice this phrase, but leaves only. Now, when I think about that phrase, usually when you end a phrase with only, you're diminishing the value of something. Like, for instance, if you're saying, you know, preacher, what did you eat for lunch today? And I said, listen, I, I had salad only. I'm wanting pity. I'm wanting prayer. Maybe a cheeseburger. Wanting people to feel bad for me that all I listen, all I got was was a salad for lunch. Or if you were to say, you know, well, preacher, what'd you have? You know, we're getting ready to have this men's fellowship, and and, and you know, we're going we're gonna have steak and baked potato and and roll. And some people might want salad. We'll pray for them, but the the probably the same people that want their steak well done. Amen. You just pray for them. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Somebody's gonna be choking down medium rare steak, hating life. Whenever we're having that, because they're going to be embarrassed to admit they want it. Well, I don't care how you want your steak. But, you know, we're getting ready to have, and you say, preacher, what's the menu going to be? Here's how I'd say it. We're going to have steak. We're going to have baked potato. We're going to have rolls. And you say, what else are you going to have? Well, only salad. Right? Only salad. Isn't it interesting? The Bible says, but leaves only. You know what the implication is here is that leaves ain't enough. The outward show is not enough. Christ didn't curse this fig tree because it had leaves. He cursed it because it had leaves only. You know the problem after Adam and Eve sinned when they tried to approach unto God with that apron of leaves? You know the problem was? They had leaves only. They had an outward show of life. When you think of leaves, what are they? They're an outward manifestation of life. When you look at a tree and it's got leaves on it, you make an assumption that it's living. But it's possible for a tree to die and before the decay is set in, those leaves to look vibrant, but there to be no life within it. You know, the Lord Jesus made this condemnation of the Pharisees. He called them whited sepulchre. A sepulchre is a tomb. It's a mausoleum. 
And he said, on the outside, you're beautiful and washed. You've been beautified. When people look at you on the outside, you, you look like there's something there. But on the inside, it's just dead men's bones. A great many people, the majority of people walking around this planet Earth that we're living on, are the exact same way. Outward, they look like they're living life. But inside, they're dead. There's nothing real there. There's nothing substantive there. They've got leaves. They've got an outward show. And some of them might even have a profession or a testimony. If you were to say, do you know God? They'd say, well, you know, I prayed a prayer one time. Or I, I was at vacation Bible school. Or, or I went to church one time. Or some preacher prayed over me. But there's no life in their life. They're leaves only. Here's what God values, we see a truth about His appraisal. You know what matters to Him? Say, oh, preacher, the leaves don't matter. No, the leaves matter. Where there's life, there will be leaves. But that don't mean just because there's leaves that there's life. If a person knows the Lord, it's going to change their outward way of living, of course. But just because they have an outward way of morality about them, that don't mean they've got inward life within them. And we see if God has to choose, and, and God doesn't choose between the two, but when God appraises, when He values things, leaves only don't get it done. Let me tell you something. Don't stand before God one day with leaves only. Don't stand before God one day with an outward show, but no inward life. I see a truth about God's appraisal. And then I see a truth about God's anger. The Bible says that Jesus said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Now probably that's figurative of Israel being destroyed in 70 A.D., because they had rejected the Messiah. God permitted the nation to be scattered. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? What I find here is that God gives men all the resources and all the opportunities to have life. But if they turn that life away, then God is not shy about pronouncing judgment upon them. I see a truth about God's anger here. I tell you, the Bible says this. People all the time will say, if you witness to them, you'll say, have you ever been saved? And they'll say things like this. Well, me and God are all right. We're all right. All right? All right like who? All right like me and my neighbors? Because that's not all right. All right like me and the tax collector? Because that's not all right, okay? What's that mean? We're all right. People say, well, me and God are okay. We're all right. Can I give you a Bible answer? Let me tell you what you should care about in life. Not what the world says. Not what your intuition says. I mean, how many times have you made bad decisions in life? If you're like me, it's a pretty constant occurrence. Don't trust your gut, all right? No matter how big it gets, don't trust your gut. Let's get a Bible answer for this. What does the Bible say about a person that has never, never put their faith in Christ and they say they are okay with God? You know what John chapter 3 says? John chapter 3 says that the wrath of God abides on all men. It's hanging over them. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That, that He did not come to condemn them, but the wrath of God abides on them already. The Bible answer is this. If you've never been saved, you're not okay with God. And it's not about joining my church. It's not about paying tithes here. It's not about being a Baptist. It's not about putting a feather in somebody's hat that's an evangelist. It's about you knowing when you pillow your head at night that you go to heaven if you die. If you have no reason to say you believe that would be true, no Bible reason, then don't assume that it's true because it's not. I see that God is not shy. It's not that He delights in it. It's not that He relishes in it.
but he is not shy about pronouncing judgment upon those who have had every opportunity but have chosen to reject him. He had leaves. I see a truth about God's anger. And that's somebody will say, okay, preacher, these dispensational truths, these theological truths, that, that, that's good, I guess. We've had a good Sunday school lesson. What about me, preacher? Well, let me give you some practical truths that are revealed in this passage. And I'm not going to say much here. I'm going to say a few things and be done. You say, preacher, what can you learn practically? I mean, I want something practical. Give, give me something. Give me something I can preach down the road. Give me something practical, preacher. Three things. Number one, I see a practical truth about the examination of our life. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I see this. God examines the trees that he plants, and there are certain things he desires out of them. It's coming a day you're going to be placed under the scrutinizing eyes of God. And all the excuses that you make will be meaningless. All of the reasons why will be meaningless. All that will matter is the truth. The Bible says nothing can be spoken against the truth, but only for the truth. You know what that means? You can lie about the truth, but it don't make the truth a lie. You can say the truth is different, but the truth is unchangeable. It is immutable. It, it, it is unshakable and it is unmovable. You can lie about the truth, but that don't change the nature of what is true. And you say, well, preacher, one of these days I'll be all right, I guess. No, one of these days you and I are going to stand before God and have to give an account for the choices that we've made in our life. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Now, we, we know lost sinners are going to stand before God, right? Even the funny papers show us pictures of that. But listen, even as a saved person, Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. I don't know who told you that when you got born again, that meant that you'd never have to have your life called into question by the Lord, but that's not true. Now, it's true that your salvation will never be revisited, reconsidered, or rescinded, but it absolutely is true that you're still going to have to answer to God for the way that you've lived your life. We've been given everything we need to grow in the Lord. Man, we, listen, we've been given the sunlight of His Word. We've been given the, the water of His Spirit. We've been given the oxygen of His blessings. And we have everything we need to grow and bloom for God. If we don't, it's because we've chosen not to. But preacher, i got leaves in my life. Yeah, that's fine. Are they leaves only? Because you know what the Lord said He's going to do one day? He's going to do some pruning. You know, when you prune, you don't prune the fruit. You harvest the fruit. You prune the leaves. Is there going to be anything left when the leaves are pruned out of your life? When God pulls back all the outward proclamations and looks into the heart of your soul, is there going to be anything there? I see this. There's an examination that's coming one day of our life. Are you ready for that day? I, I, I learn a practical truth about the examination of our life. Number two, I learn a practical truth about the expectation of our Lord. When he came there, he expected to find fruit there. He didn't come to survey it to see if might possibly there could be some. When the Bible says if happily, what it means is, is he was giving an opportunity, but not that he was surprised. He came looking for fruit, and he expected that there would be fruit there, though he knew there wouldn't be. The, the expectation was placed on the fig tree because it bore leaves. It should have had fruit. I tell you, God expects some things out of our life. I, I, I don't know. I guess I do know. I do know why. But I don't know where this casual cultural Christianity that has so enamored modern day Western Christianity has come from of this notion as though God just doesn't give a rip about how we live our lives. You won't find a shred of that in the Bible. What you'll find is that God is deeply interested in how we live our lives. 
And that God in salvation has given us all the things we need. The Bible says it this way. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So God expects a couple things out of our life. One, spiritual life. For us to have a real meaningful relationship with Him. Not outward life and inward deadness, but a relationship to pray to Him, to read the Word of God, to respond to the Word of God, uh, to lean upon Him meaningfully day by day, to, to seed our decisions unto Him and let Him govern our life. He looks for life. And the second thing He looks for is godliness. Now what's godliness? It's godlikeness. We could call it holiness, we could call it righteousness, but really what it is, is, is more sweeping than that. It is God-likeness. So God expects two things out of our life. For us to have real life within, and for us to have manifest life without. You say, preacher, what's God looking for? Does He hate leaves? No, He loves leaves. He created the trees to have leaves. But if there's leaves, there ought to be fruit within as well. He wants there to be an inward life, but an outward testimony as well. Listen to how the book of Ephesians says in Ephesians chapter number 2. It says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. It's funny, man. People, and I love Ephesians chapter 2. We've been teaching the book of Ephesians in Sunday school. And everybody wants to quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And everybody stops. And listen, I praise God for the grace of God. There, there ain't no amount of righteousness I could have done and I couldn't do any righteousness to get me in good favor with God. I'm glad it's by grace. But don't stop there. Read on verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Paul said it this way in the epistle to the Hebrew believers. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, we'd all be content to stop there and run and shout, wouldn't we? But he goes on a little further. He says, make you perfect. doesn't mean morally stainless or spotless, but it means mature. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying God expects some things out of our life. If you draw a breath, there are two things God expects you to do. One is to praise Him, and two is to receive Him. After you've received Him, there's a plethora of the things God expects out of your life. He expects you to live a life of obedience unto Him, to have an intimate relationship with His Word, to have a prayer life that is meaningful and substantive. On and on we could go. Suffice it to say, that this idea that, that Christianity just means, well, I, I signed my name on a little green card, and now i got a ticket to heaven, now I don't have to think about God anymore. That's not Bible Christianity. Rather, it is trusting Christ and seeing our life changed as a result. I see the expectation of our Lord. And then finally, I see the exclamation of our loss. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Lord says, because I came to it and I found nothing thereon, there is a price to be paid. There is a punishment be meted out. The Bible says in verse number 19 that when he saw leaves only, he said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And somebody's going to say, well, there it is, preacher. We can lose that, that eternal life and wither up. No, it's not what your Bible said. No more than Israel has been cast off forever. Would the believer be cast off forever? No, it's not saying that God's done with you. But what it is saying is this. You have a window of time to bear fruit in your life. When that window is passed, it's passed. Can I tell you what that window of time is for you and I? It's between our first breath and our last. 
You might have known when you drew your first, but you have no clue when you'll draw your last. And that is our window of time. Once that time is passed and the examination happened, once that time is passed and we've stood before God, He has pronounced whatever the judgment is upon our life, there's no chance after that to go back and try to fix and change and erase and patch up and paint over. You have this window of time. You have less time today than you had yesterday. You don't know how much time you have. But when that time is past, it's past. If you're lost, you have this moment to accept Christ. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not because there can be no tomorrow, but because you're not promised tomorrow. If you hear my voice today and you're lost, today is the day that God wants you to get saved. If you're waiting for a thunderbolt from heaven, a a ton of bricks to fall on you, my preacher, you say, if you just want a ton of bricks, come here, I'll give you one. If you're waiting for some glorious sign to fall from heaven, here is your sign. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. In other words, don't put it off. Today's the day. You don't need no more sign than the Bible. And the Bible tells you today is the day because you're not promised tomorrow. Now listen, if you're here and you're saved, can I tell you this? You're given this window of time to serve the Lord. It is hastening to a close. We don't know when it'll end. We know the Lord could return at any moment. Uh, We know that our life could be snuffed out at any moment. And so if there's something you need to be doing for Christ, you better get busy doing it. Because you don't know how much time you have left. And once that moment ends, we close our eyes in death. It's not that we cease to exist. Of course we don't. The Bible teaches that we continue to exist, that, that, that we have life beyond this life. But it does mean that that opportunity to serve the Lord is past. So the question is this, in your life, hey, listen, are you using the time that God's given you? Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read this and be done. So, oh, no, preacher, I'm on my way to heaven. I don't have anything to worry about. I don't, I don't have to live for the Lord. I'm on my way to heaven. That's all that matters. How did Paul talk about it? Bible answers. What did he say? He says this, I have laid the foundation. He's talking about salvation here. And another buildeth thereon. He's talking to the believers at Corinth. He says, I've laid the foundation of, of salvation and another buildeth thereon. Builds a spiritual life on top of it. But he says this, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. In other words, how you live your life and what you build your life up to. He says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, no man's going to build without that foundation. You don't have the foundation of Jesus Christ, you ain't going to build. But even after that foundation has been laid, you're going to build a life. What's that life going to be? Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Now, what day? The day we stand before the Lord, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. It's not talking about hellfire, but it's talking about fire in the sense of a purging and disclosing element. Saying one of these days, God's going to look at it and examine it. And he says this, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Preacher, what's Paul talking about there? He's saying there's an examination day coming. And he's saying in that day, we've built things that are not spiritual. If we've built things that are meaningless, if we have lived our life investing in this world and its treasures, those things are going to burn up. Because listen, the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But if we poured our life into eternal matters, 
And I listen, God doesn't expect you to quit your job. God doesn't expect you to give away all your money. If He tells you to do that, I'm a good candidate for it. Amen? God doesn't expect, God doesn't begrudge you having to live a life in this world. But if all you're living is the life of this world, then you're missing out. And you don't even know how much you're missing out. One of these days you'll stand before God and you'll see what you'll really have missed out. Preacher, what practical truths? Well, it teaches me I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and I have this moment in time to respond to Him. You have this moment in time to respond to Him. Don't put Him off. Don't turn Him away until it's everlasting too late. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord this morning. If God has spoken to your heart about a matter, then I'd like for you to meet Him down in this altar. Would you do that? Would you be bold enough? Would you have the courage to come down and meet the Lord and talk to Him in this altar? I don't mean meet Him physically, but I mean come down and speak to the Lord and do business with the Lord. You say, Preacher, I, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, just come bear your heart to Him. Uh, he can take all the things that you feel like you've said wrong and didn't know what to say. He can take straight those things out. Just come down and bear your heart to Him. If He dealt with you about something, respond to Him. If He asked for something from your life, give it to Him. If He wants to give something to your life, what I mean is instruct you or, 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 or give you comfort or give you faith or give you strength, then, then be willing to receive what the Lord has done. And just let God work in your heart and mind. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.